can you now tell having seen and interviewed over close to 400 people which ones are going to work like can you give us a sense of you know what is the chris mitchell smell test welcome to episode 418 of the community broadband bits podcast this is rye marcatilio mccracken here at the institute for local self-reliance today christopher talks with isfandayer shaheen also known as asfi asfi is the founder and ceo of net equity networks asfi has been on the podcast before he and Christopher talked on episode 351 about the spillover effect of fiber networks in areas like public works and agriculture. They talked about how high bandwidth connections can reduce municipal labor overhead, allow companies to do predictive maintenance on expensive machines, and give farmers way more information about how their crops are doing in the field. Osfi is one of the great minds thinking about bold new strategies to expand high-quality internet access across the globe. We asked him to interview Christopher because Christopher has a big ego. Unfortunately, in his excitement to be interviewed by Asfi, Christopher messed up the recording equality by using a USB hub that introduced some noise. We hope it's not too bad, and Christopher promises he won't do it again. Asfi asks Christopher about his childhood, the state of broadband coverage and policy today, and the Christopher Mitchell smell test for new networks. Now, here's Christopher talking with Asfi. Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast. In case you're wondering who's this guy who doesn't sound like Chris Mitchell, my name is Isfandiyar Shaheen. I go by Asfi and I have been given the rare honor to interview Chris Mitchell. And I uh, totally jumped at this opportunity because Chris is someone I have we've all uh, heard from. He's taught us so much. Today is an opportunity to learn about Chris. Uh, and so, um, Chris, we, we, I mean, a lot of your listeners, I think you're now approaching three, 400 episodes almost. Uh, we know you as uh, Mr. Community Broadband Bits. <laughs> but, you know, the question I've been uh, aching to ask and learn about is the person behind Chris Mitchell or the person at that before you became involved with ILSR. So I'd actually like to start by understanding the first time you ever logged on to the internet. Tell us about that time. Tell us about yourself at that time. And uh, I'd love to understand your relationship with the internet uh, before we get into uh, the rest of our conversation. Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a good challenging first question. The question about my first experience, it really comes down to a definitional issue, actually, in some ways. Um, and, and I think it, when I, you gave me a, a, some questions to, to think a little bit about before. So I was trying to figure out how to, how to talk about this. And I think it's worth, so when I grew up, um, when I was very young, my father repaired small electronics. And then he got laid off and I was about six or seven or so. He went back, he started a community college and he found out he was actually pretty good at it. And so he went and got a college degree in dealing with computers. And then he got a master's actually after that, all of which was done in like, like where he was taking double class loads and things like that. Well, my mom, who's a nurse, uh, supported the family and worked what we called triple doubles, which is an incredible amount of work, which all just, which to say is that I actually am a rare, like working class kid who had computers in the home. Um, I grew up around electronics. I grew up, you know, with, uh, with, a with a computer after I was like maybe 10 or 11, we had a computer in the, in our home in the late eighties. And so I was on Prodigy back before the internet was commercialized. And I remember just trying to figure out what you could do. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, for a lot of people, they like to 
catch up on sports and stuff like that or talk to other people. And I don't even really remember what I was doing on Prodigy except for being fascinated that I could talk to different people and things like that. And now if you fast forward a bit, I, I do remember when we had our first internet connection and I was learning, you know, how you, how the dial up worked and things like that. This would be probably like 93, 94. And I just remember talking with friends of mine that had, that were, that had been using a little bit longer and being like, well, okay, I'm on the internet now. How do I find things? And web crawler was the browser, was the search engine of the day. And so I definitely remember, you know, just going around there and then, for me, I got in. I wanted to create stuff. I started building websites. Um, View Source was the most amazing thing because every web page you could see how they did something. And so when people came along with like multi-column formats where you had like a left sidebar, I remember just studying it and being like, "Oh, tables! Like I need to learn how tables work." And and you could just do it by looking at how people did things, you know. And then eventually, I got. I started getting in, not in trouble. I would say because I had good teachers at the high school I went to, but um, you know, when I started being able to do independent research. I was looking into um, things like the um, School of the Americas, in which the United States was training people ostensibly mostly from Latin America. And, and what we we're supposed to be doing was teaching them about the importance of civilian rule and, and democratization and things like that. And unfortunately, many of them um, learned other lessons, which I think were also taught there. And, and they began... Um, uh, mass killings and, and torture squads and things in, and I was in high school and I'm just sort of like finding this stuff on the internet and I'm, I'm half of me is like, is this real? You know, when they published the actual training manuals from Fort Benning, I would report on them in school. And I think a lot of the kids probably thought I was a conspiracy theory nut. Um, and my teachers were also sort of interested in the internet. And so they encouraged me and I, I tried to learn how to do better research and sort fact from fiction. But, you know, in some ways I feel like I just hit a lot of the lessons every Everyone has learned, but I hit them a little bit earlier. And I, I mean, I just never wanted to, to stop. I remember having arguments with friends about they were, they, some of them thought it was dumb that I was on email and trying to email people. And they're like, no one uses email, <laughs> you know? And so I, I don't know, like I have a lot of different memories. I mean, I learned about networking by trying to set up doom two LAN parties, um, you know, and trying to do uh, four <laughs> people in a basement with these like large computers and these big, heavy monitors, and, like <laughs> carting this stuff around um, in order to, to play this, um, you know, game where we'd shoot each other um, four person, you know, two V2. Actually, it was all, I think it was everyone for themselves at that point. Um, so, you know, I just, I've, I've loved it. I, I had a business in which I was designing websites and doing some server administration. I'd volunteered with different um, efforts over the years to um, provide like independent media that was non-corporate. Um, and, and I learned a lot of server administration that way. So I, I feel like the internet is, it, it, in some ways, it's just, it was a part of my my late childhood and in teens growing up and I've just always been very active on it. Amazing. And, and Chris is a, a lovely memories of doom, by the <laughs> way. I mean, I, I don't know if you I just brought back like my memories of using that cheat code, IDDQD, <laughs> which is on God mode. Um, I don't want to get distracted by conversations about doom. Um, tell us a bit geographically where you grew up and what point you realized that internet access is so unequal, like, uh, and also tell us a bit about what the status of internet connectivity is in areas where you Well, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, um, near Allentown, Pennsylvania. I lived in Allentown for a while. My family moved out. And then um, in, um, I think it was 92 or 91, we moved to Minnesota. I always forget which. Um, we moved to Rochester, Minnesota. 
Um, and that became, you know, sort of my love affair for Minnesota. I've lived here ever since. Um, I, I think I learned a lot and being in Eastern Pennsylvania shaped me, but, um, I, I love Minnesota. Um, you know, for most of the time that, um, I've not lived in the twin cities in St. Paul specifically, um, the internet was, I would say fairly equally distributed in that anyone who had a telephone line could have could have the same access as anyone else. Um, although for some people, they would have had to dial mm. long distance to connect, perhaps. It's only really with after the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, where speeds varied by geography in many ways. Although, you know, there was work in, in rural areas to set up modem pools for dial-up back in the day. Um, and so, you know, I would say the, the access was more about having the literacy and the devices historically. Um, but I've lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for um, since I went to college here. So that's almost uh, 25 years now. Um, and in that time, um, we've certainly seen an Internet access um, because uh, so, the speed has gotten so much faster in, in some areas, but not others. It's more of a recent phenomenon where yeah. you have this lack of access. Tell us, Tim, tell us a bit about that that moment, that time in your life where that first instance, when you first realized that, wow, this is that access, that access is so unequal, that there is this rural urban divide, like what was that point? And like, that's the point I want to capture in this conversation. Uh, the point where right before uh, you, you took up this, this mantle um, at uh, ILSR. I, I don't know if I really... So I mean, right before I started ILSR, I was in grad school at the University of Minnesota um, and studying public policy and science and technology policy specifically. Mm-hmm. In that time, I was really focused on energy policy because um, I went to grad school not really knowing what I would be doing. But the advisor that I got um, assigned to uh, was brilliant. Um, still is brilliant. <laughs> um, and, and she was really an energy policy. And so in her classes, I feel like were the hardest and she was the most challenging. She was an, it was actually her first year as a professor. She'd come from um, EPA where she'd worked um, both in the, in the private sector previously, I think, and in government and was very interested in energy policy. And I just, I mean, it was, we always, it was the classic drinking from a fire hose. Um, when I talked to her a few years ago, she said that she's cut the assigned work in half and people still complain it's overwhelming. And I, I don't believe it. I mean, it was, it was a very fast two years. Um, when I came out, I, I jumped into ILSR because I was interested in information technology. And that's in some ways, the question I went to grad school with that was really bugging me was, was not so much about internet access. It was about how it could be that in the year in the early 2000s we had more access to information than at any other time in the human history and yet a significant number of americans believed that saddam hussein was involved in 9/11 and it, it just drove me nuts because it's a basic fact that wasn't even really in I mean, some people would dispute, oh, they'd try to come up with reasons to tie Osama bin Laden to Saddam Hussein. But it just drove me nuts because it struck me as someone who I'd studied the Middle East, I'd been fascinated by U.S. policy in the Middle East. And it was just this thing that was like so obvious that those two events were not linked. And then to see that ignorance help push us toward a war um, in which, you know, uh, ruined the lives of millions of people in the Middle East, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans um, were certainly touched directly. Um, 
So I was interested in how people were using the internet. And um, I had this opportunity to take over this program at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, which I was totally unprepared for. <laughs> but um, but I, I found uh, myself having, um, you know, surrounded by really good people here. Um, I think almost all of whom are still here um, at the Institute. We have wonderful um, levels of long-term, um, you know, um, we don't have very much turnover. Um, but it was probably during that time when I started to more appreciate how service was so uneven and, and what the implications of that would be over time. Amazing. Um, that is, that, that's, that's super, super insightful, Chris. I mean, my, uh, you know, even though I, I can't vote in this country yet, um, one of my big hopes for you is to someday see you as uh, the chairman of the FCC <laughs> and, no. uh, I that with all sincerity because I think, I think, I mean, there are just very few people who understand the heartache of rural America better than you do. And, uh, I want to ask when the, the first loaded question I want to ask you is that if by some stroke of luck, I had the power to make you FCC chairman, what are three actions that you would take immediately? There's people who will say, oh, you know, I, would, I wouldn't want to be the chair of the FCC. Like, I think that what I'm doing is what I'm very well suited for. And so I appreciate your question and I'm going to, and I'll answer it honestly, but I'll say that I don't think I would be a good chair of the FCC. I think there's people who have the right qualities. I think I'm, I'm well suited to be doing the kind of stuff I am. And I think it's important that people do have a, a sense that not everyone would be a good president. Not everyone would be a good chief of staff. Um, with that said, I would like to think that one of the first things I would do is is set in place processes for publicizing real data, um, real data that would ena enable markets to function better. Um, and that would include pricing so that we could see where the worst problems are. It would be address level you know, availability where the, where the services are available. Um, and these are things that, um, not the pricing, which the FCC does not seem likely to do, but they will be doing better mapping. But I think it's really important that a regulatory agency publishes data. Government needs to publish accurate data that people can make plans on and entrepreneurs can work around and cities can, you know, make policy based on. I'd like to support experiments, um, things that wouldn't necessarily happen in, um, the country otherwise, or the things that are happening slowly, you know, I, I think the FCC has the ability to encourage um, certain types of networks to see what the results are and what happens at scale. So um, open access, I'd like to see money for um, open access networks to see what the results are, how it changes markets um, and what the implications are. And I'd like to see more experiments around spectrum. Um, what can we do with more spectrum sharing and things like that to get more out of this resource? A final thing um, is a culture shift. The FCC is is built up around regulating and and kind of misperceives the country as being um, run by AT and T and Comcast and Charter. And if you look at, for instance, who's invested in rural America, it's hundreds, maybe more than a thousand small companies. It's cooperatives. It's, um, you know, municipalities, um, the big companies have been absent and we still see states and the federal government trying to figure out how to get money to the big companies. And I think that's the wrong direction. Um, and I, and so I would be trying to make sure that FCC policy 
encourages and recognizes that um, telecommunications should now be about overlapping networks, not one giant centralized network or three giant centralized networks, but many overlapping networks that are, you know, providing resiliency through the same way the internet does. I'm hoping we have a new FCC chair come, um, you know, spring next year that in many, many cases, circumstances set the agenda for the chair of an agency like that. And I think you can go in saying, these are the three things I'm going to do. And maybe you can do one thing, but fundamentally you're going to be responding to whatever happens um, on your watch. Amazing. And I, I think I'd like to drill a bit deeper, Chris, into uh, the fourth mm-hmm. point you raised, which is, you know, for the communications regulator to go beyond the, the scale network operators and to think about, uh, you know, um, where um, uh, quality coverage is lacking. Um, I, I feel like the, the point about accurate data has been discussed plenty in your, your, your discussions before, so I won't delve deeper there, but I would like to go a bit deeper. I mean, for me, frankly, as, a, as an observer uh, of, of, of connectivity, looking at maps published by you and you're looking at maps published by the FCC and then traveling uh, to some of the conferences where you are a regular uh, speaker, uh, it was quite an eye-opener to see the disconnect for myself. And so um, my question I want to ask you is, like, you've been following this um, uh, initiatives by municipalities, by cooperatives, by by smaller uh, operators to you know make connectivity uh, uh, happen in rural areas, and and a lot of times it is through fiberization. And, and I mean, I, I I say I so I mean I use fiberization as something that's synonymous improving connectivity, but certainly not attached to that being the holy grail and the only option. Broadly, I want to ask you that you know when you look at genuine uh, initiatives uh, in uh, that are happening in rural America and particularly as it relates to fiberization, are they currently happening faster or slower than you had anticipated, say, three years ago? And and I'd like you to uh, remember some of you do this lovely uh, uh, show where you um, look back at forecasts and predictions with some of your colleagues and then you kind of see, what did <laughs> right. I get right? What did I get wrong? So you do you guys do that annually but if you were to take like a three to five year view on you know what were you thinking five years ago uh you know like give us a bit of a broader time horizon perspective uh are things going faster or slower love to hear depending on the issue both i think um I say both because I thought that we would be further along and I think to some extent it was um incorrect reading of what was possible given supply chains and things like that I mean even if let's say that someone came along and Bezos said, I'm going to liquidate my entire wealth right now. And we're just going to build rural broadband and it'll still take a while. (laughs) Um, So in some ways slower, but on the other hand, um, we're in such a better position right now. You know, it was about last year when I realized that the small independent telephone companies were really pushing hard into fiber and high speed services. Uh, and I hadn't noticed it. It had happened before a year ago um, where, where there was sort of a tipping point. And, and in my mind, I was still thinking back to maybe like five years ago when the telephone companies reacted with hostility to the idea that DSL wasn't good enough um, in many cases. And they laughed at, at the idea of a gigabit. Um, you know, nobody needed it was their argument. They like to make fun of Google um, and they still do, <laughs> you know, but independent telephone companies have really 
you know, gone. There's, there's always been some, you know, there's always been like 10, 15% of the independent telephone companies that have been very forward thinking. Um, and, and that includes a number of the cooperatives. But now it seems like most of the independent telephone companies have, have gotten it for a while that they need a higher quality product. They need to deliver very high quality speeds. Um, and so I think that's very good for rural America. Um, and then, uh, you know, the electric cooperatives coming online is just, it's remarkable. It seems like it's probably not every week on average, but I mean, I think I've seen three announcements in the last week or two alone of of Southern electric cooperatives deciding to commit to fiber. Uh, some of that may be with plans of getting um, auction from this FCC auction that's coming up, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Um, but I, I really think that, much of rural America is going to be covered in the next five to seven years. Um, and I think it's going to take longer for some other areas um, in part, because what do you do if you have like a part of, let's just say Kansas and no one is stepping up to cover it. Um, you know, it's hard to figure out how you solve that problem. And, and I think often the regulator answer at the state and the federal level has been satellite. <laughs> um, but we need to entice someone to expand. And, and if that means a cooperative, well, that cooperative probably has to expand its own service internally first and make sure all of its customers are covered before they can then expand to a new area where they haven't historically served. And so this could take a while to work some of that out. But I I don't think of rural broadband as a, as a puzzle anymore. Um, rural broadband is something that needs money. We know how to solve it more or less, um, you know, um, but you look at something like um, the challenge in urban areas with um, where there's already cable service, but it's unaffordable. That's a political nightmare because of the power of the cable companies to solve it. And, and I think that's the hardest challenge we have in broadband today. That is fascinating. I think that's the first time I've heard you talk about uh, the upcoming challenge in urban areas. Uh, but before I go there, um, you've seen so many initiatives, right? Like you've seen co-ops, you've seen munis, you've seen small telecom operators. I mean, so I'm going to just bundle them all into, you know, I would call them affordable connectivity initiatives in markets that are not traditionally cut by large corporations. Can you now tell, having seen and interviewed over close to 400 people, which ones are going to work? Like, can you give us a sense of, you know, what is the Chris Mitchell smell test? Like you see something, I'm sure you have a good gut instinct now. You're like, you see something and you're like, I can see these guys pulling through. You see something and you're like, ah, I don't think, I don't think this, this is, this is issues. What is that Chris Mitchell smell test? Help us understand that. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the praise. I think I, I've tried to develop my smell test in, in part by looking at people that actually have a lot more experience than me. I mean, consultants that um, have often been very open with me, um, perhaps after a drink at a conference. <laughs> um, you know, that's where I've I've learned quite a bit as well in terms of what they see happening. And, um, and there's two things that I immediately look for, I think. Um, one is... Um, in particular for any kind of a project, is uh, what is the financing plan? If the financing plan is we're going to find someone that's just going to give us free money and we're going to keep hoping to find that, then that doesn't seem very realistic. Whereas if a financing plan is, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to bond for this amount. We're going to borrow that amount. We're going to take some sort of risk. We have, we've had these important discussions in which we're putting skin in the game in a meaningful way. Um, to me, that suggests a level of responsibility that suggests more likelihood of success. And the other piece of it is, and this is more true, 
of municipal broadband than 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 a very rural cooperative type approach is a marketing plan. Um, you know, most of the municipal broadband networks that have been accused of failure, um, the ones that have actually failed, um, a lot of them it's a marketing issue where they have a superior product. They probably have a reasonable price for it, but they are not getting the word out and they're not attracting people with an effective marketing campaign. And so I want to have a see a sign that people are taking that seriously, whether it's just, you know, educating people about how to use it or the importance of going with a community led initiative, um, you know, or, or what is, what is their, their approach, um, to doing that. Um, and I, and I, and I think, you know, a lot of times I'm only talking to one or two people from a community. And so it's hard for me to really get a deep sense of what's happening, but looking for some level of community buy-in is a part of of both of those i think you know if it's if it's like two people that have a really good idea even if they're really smart and really capable um you know if if they haven't done the work on the finance if they don't have a good marketing plan it's often a sign that even if they have the right analysis it's not necessarily going to go anywhere awesome so share with us an example of one very cool uh financing or funding technique that you've seen and one very cool marketing technique that you've seen of all the areas that you've covered. Like what stands out? Top of mind, cool financing play, cool marketing play of everything out of everything that you've seen. Well, I really like the way RS Fiber um, structured their their financing. We wrote a report on it called Fertile Fields. It's a broadband cooperative out of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has had some challenges in that uh, they have seed capital. Half of it was provided by a loan from the cities, and that helped to unlock the rest of the loan through a complex arrangement that we discuss. But basically, is that the cities have paid a portion of the cost, but absorbed almost all of the risk. And I like the creativity there. Um, now, in part because of some challenges that they had, uh, they had to make good on that, and they had to um, they've had to use tax dollars to supplement the network in the first two years that they had to pay debt because they had not hit all of their their goals for uh, revenue. Um, and when that happened, I was at the meeting where they voted to for the cities to to pay that out of the the levy. And the only questions that were asked were, well, when is the network going to expand? <laughs> you know, people weren't upset. They still viewed the network as being a very good deal for the community. And that is because there was a lot of community buy-in and, and work that had been done. Um, but I think too many people think, oh, can we bond for 100% of this network? Or can we get a grant for 50% of the network? When you should be thinking, you know, maybe we can build this network over here in this way, and maybe we can arrange different financing in that way, which is, as I would say, my my criticism more largely fits together with um, this idea that too many places are trying to figure out how to do something all at once or using only one mechanism. And I think a lot more communities would be better served if they tried something incremental rather than just trying to figure out how to do it all at once. So that's the, the a financing model that I think is really good is that model of of trying to piece together different financing arrangements um, that fit together nicely. You know, in terms of a, a great marketing, I 
I go back to uh, Kyle Hollifield, who's been on the show a few times. He's been um, is someone who's taught me a lot over the years. He was a, he's a marketer, and um, and he would talk about how um, you know his marketing strategy really built on the utility as a whole in the community. And so this would be relevant for electric utilities or municipalities that also do other services, because in many cases people don't have a choice for some of your services, and so it's weird to think of how to advertise that. But what you want to do is you want to create a feeling of community. And so one of the things that one of these places did was they would sponsor like equipment for sports teams for kids. And the reasoning was that he put it to me was, you know, when when grandma gets a knock at the door and someone says, hey, I can knock $20 off your your, your internet bill or your cable bill um, if you go with us. Um, you know, grandma's thinking, yeah, but, but my grandchild's wearing soccer cleats that they got from the utility and my loyalty is with the utility. Um, and so I just think it's not a billboard, you know, it's, you know, it's this sense of, of community that is being built. And I, I think it's a challenge to do that. And, in, in you know, just throwing soccer cleats at every family isn't going to do it in every community, but it's that sort of creativity. Uh, just one thing I want to share, Chris, since financing is my world, I think a lot of times, developing this distinction between financing and funding is important. Like, uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, financing, as you know, is bringing the actual cash to do the construction. Funding is figuring out who's going to pay for it. And I think that, you know, more and more, as I'm seeing internationally, even since my focus is outside of America, I think more and more what I'm finding with the fiber networks, particularly rural fiber networks, is that if the funding equation can be solved, where, an entity can say, you know, I will assume demand risk, then the financing follows very easily. And uh, it's this, this is, uh, you know, another time I'd love to discuss this concept of the availability payment scheme with you. It's something that was used in Indonesia. And uh, I really hope that that's something that, you know, we get to see more of uh, in, uh, in, in, in parts of uh, America. Yeah, we could probably simplify a little bit by just saying that almost all of the challenge is in who bears the risk. And, and I think this is something that, that we have government specifically to accomplish things we can't do individually. You know, it's about like solving these things. It's about bearing risk. And so, you know, I, so I, will, we have, oh, I will stop you there. I'll stop you there. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll say this, Chris, that see, risk is a spectrum. Risk is a spectrum. Just like trust is a spectrum. Risk is a spectrum. Like, risk to do what right and i think the more that that spectrum can be broken down the easier risk digestion can be can become like honestly like this is like you know what, what we're seeing work fairly well but i mean particularly with fiber initiative one scheme that i've seen work really well is if the private sector is told hey your responsibility is to ensure you construct it and you keep this thing on we will find a way to pay you if you can keep this thing on, but we're going to pay you a fixed amount. You can't just keep charging us more and more as more and more customers start using this. That creates some very interesting set of incentive structures where the private sector is now incentivized to build a cost-effective uh, solution. Mm -hmm. They are incentivized to put up the money up front. They are incentivized to take the risk up front. And the public sector, which could be the city or the universal service fund or the or the or, or the local municipality, is basically saying, "We know there is demand for it. We know that whatever return you need, this fixed return you need, we will ensure you get that." And basically, then what the city is basically saying is, 
you know, there is a, there's going to be a bit of a shortfall in the initial years. In the initial years, let's say your take rate is like 20%. So there's going to be a bit of a shortfall that will be there to satisfy all the payment requirements. If literally the city just says, I'm willing to pay for this shortfall and I will no longer be on the hook when this shortfall is not there, just that little tweak mm-hmm. um, can start mobilizing an incredible amount of dollars. And so I think, I think this is where I think like it's important to draw that distinction that, you know, what are we, who is bearing exactly which risk? If the public sector is, and this is where I, 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 I sometimes get a bit frustrated and perhaps because, you know, I, I mean, for me, financing is my world, right? Like everyone's been talking about, oh, internet is critical infrastructure. Everyone's talking about access to internet, <laughs> right? And like, okay, now what, right? If you think it's critical infrastructure, then there is no question about demand. Then there is no question about demand. Yes. Public sector, please come and assume demand risk. Because if you come and assume demand risk, I can guarantee you that for every public dollar, you will mobilize $20 from the private sector. I feel like, you know, there's like, uh, there's just so much uh, uh, more sort of work and education that needs to be done. Uh, It's just like this distinction between funding and financing and understanding the type of risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me just say that I think um, it's definitely also slightly different challenges when you're talking about a first network versus um, uh, an area in which there already are some networks that are serving some part of the population um, where they have um, political power to try to shape the solutions. That's just where I think it starts to get a little bit more complicated, but I um, I very much appreciate your points on that. And, um, and I think that's where it's important that the government makes sure that if it is going to take on risk, that it is for the benefit of the community and not some well-connected political actor. Totally, totally with you. The more we rewrite incentive structures, right? Like it's like, um, it's incentive structure, the the digital divide is a byproduct of incentive structures. Mm -hmm. And unless those incentive structures are tweaked, there is no way that, you know, we can, uh, we can change this, uh, this little puzzle. Um, but um, I, I'm super encouraged to to hear that for you, like you can see the puzzle as solved and you can, you can see it happening in a couple of years, um, which brings me to my next question. You know, we've always talked about community broadband. We've talked about the specific communities you focus on. I want to shift gears and focus a bit more on ILSR um, and understand how you guys measure success. I want to understand uh, for you that, you know, if you're looking if we fast forward two years, right, or three years, and you're looking back, like, what does amazing look like for you? What does success look like as ILSR? For a lot of years, we've seen linear growth in municipal networks and in um, even cooperatives. In many ways, I think, you know, an amazing success is is um, much faster growth than that it's entirely possible to see exponential growth uh, for several years of municipal broadband. Um, And so that would be one solution. And I think in order to get that, I don't think we can see that kind of growth with the retail model where the cities are themselves offering services themselves. I only think we can see that growth with an open access model where they're enabling others, whether it's one partner or ideally multiple partners and ideally, ideally, um, you know, different services. And so, you know, 
I love what Utopia is doing. I love what the the what the um, has been accomplished in Washington with the public utility districts. You know, we have about thirty open access networks in the United States, and most of them are ones in which you can sort of you can get vanilla from this company, vanilla from that company, or vanilla from this other company. Now, what I find so exciting about Ammon and the work that EntryPoint is doing, and and I think there's others that are trying to do it as well, is this idea of like, well, maybe I want to get vanilla from them and chocolate from them, and I want to get strawberry and you know, and coconut cream from this other person all at once. Can we do that? Um, this idea of like, it's not just internet service, but, um, but um, different kinds of services. Telehealth is an obvious one. But at a certain point, I, it's hard to predict because in this world, we would see innovation that's, I think, very hard to predict right now. And so I think the most amazing outcome would be having, you know, dramatic growth in municipal networks that would really catalyze this open access approach with new markets being created and really seeing what kind of innovation we could drive. It's possible that in a few years after that, we would say, you know what? No, most people just want internet access. They want IP services and we can do everything over that. But I'm not convinced that that's true. And and I really think we should give it a good chance. So, I mean, that's what I've been what I've been hoping for and I feel like it's worth saying though, it's hard for us to know how successful we've been. Um because so much of what we do is based on a decentralized strategy. We try to provide materials in ways that we can't track how they're all being used in part because I think the effort to track makes them less useful. Um, we try to make materials that others can use without us knowing about it. So they can just go out, they can iterate, they can use our materials, and they can do their own thing. And so we're not a central point of failure. Um, and so that just makes it harder for us to know where we're having as much of an impact. And I think that's a, a trade-off for a decentralized structure. I think I think it's why we've been so successful in this area. Um, but it's also sometimes, you know, I'm trying to tell a funder that, that we've been a good investment and it can be hard <laughs> to tell them exactly how. Man, for honestly, for what it's, I mean, I think, I think you guys add a phenomenal amount of value. I mean, I can speak for myself, like your organization has made a monumental difference in the work that I do. Uh, in terms of, you know, not just teaching me theory, but showing real examples and then helping me point other people to so many examples that are sadly opaque, you know, like, honestly, the world doesn't know that America has a connectivity problem. The world doesn't mm-hmm. know. Most, Amer- I live in Silicon Valley. Like, honestly, I have, I've, I mean, I've been here for now two and a half years. Not a single person knows about this crazy cool network in Ammon, Idaho. <laughs> you know, it's like, just like a two-hour flight but like no one knows and so you know going back to this thing that you talked about you know the your Saddam example it's like information's out there but like I mean so much of it you know capturing attention is a problem so I mean look I think your organization is I mean you know I mean I've once been a funder it's I think probably one of the best investments I've made and I want to do more of and so this one thing I want to ask you you know if you'd like to share with your re- uh, listeners, you know, how can we support this more? Like what more can we do? Because I think that, um, you know, yes, it's a challenge me- measuring exact impact of ILSR, but I think, you know, just qualitatively speaking for myself, just the fact that you can point examples, help create community, help build bridges you know, between a Pakistani guy like me sitting in Silicon Valley wanting to do internet for all in his part of the world with, you know, 
communities in rural america like that's incredible right so, so i'd like to know like what's your message to your listeners how can we do more because personally i'd love to do more and i'm sure there are other people who'd like to do more <laughs> tell us well there's a there's an irony in my answer because i am i'm sadly overwhelmed in email uh i have a wonderful team um and uh we get more requests than than we can help with um but my answer in some ways is is letting us know what resources you need one of the ways that we decide, oh, we need a new fact sheet or we should do a report on this is if we get questions from people in which we're like, we know what the answer is, but we don't have a place to point to explain it um, because I don't want to send the same email 20 times. Um, and so, you know, if I find myself, for instance, lately we've been talking with some cities about digital divide issues in the wake of the pandemic. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's, okay, we should have collected the advice that we've been giving to these community after community into a short document that then we can give to them so that when we talk to them, you know, they've already seen the basic, uh, the basic um, steps that we would recommend and we can talk about them. And rather than spending an hour explaining that, they can spend 10 minutes reading it and then we can just move on to higher value conversation. Um, but, but it's not always clear what is most valuable for people, like where the, where the hangups are, why aren't we seeing more municipal networks develop? And I think a lot of people would say because of it's hard to finance. And I don't know that that's true. Um, whether it's financing or funding. Um, I think generally if a city is saying that it's because they haven't made it a big enough priority. And the question is, how do you make it a big enough priority? Um, because one of the reasons our analysis hinges on local governments is they have access to capital when they want to. Um, also true of state and federal government, frankly. Um, and so it's a question of of priorities. And so for us, I think it is a question of, okay, what materials do we need to produce that will help folks that are active on the ground or may already be on city council or a mayor, but how will they convince others around them that this is a priority worth investing in? Um, I think that's, you know, where we're constantly trying to figure out how making sure that the, the time we're spending into creating resources is making the right resources. That's really interesting. I think, you know, my two cents over there, Chris would be that uh, as with the influx of information, attention is becoming scarce. And a lot of times people find it hard to internalize information that is written in text form. And hmm. I think maybe I should do an like, audio you know, show. one sort of thought would be <laughs> No, well, no, I, I, I think, you know, honestly, it's like, it, no, it's more, something mm -hmm. more basic, right? Like, I mean, if there's like, I mean, if there's like a, like a Zoom room, like people can tune into where, you know, you've got some well-wisher listeners who are willing to share their knowledge. Because I think a lot of times, like, you know, it's that human touch that's also required with a bit of hand-holding that's needed, right? To say that, hey, look, if you need to just talk to someone about getting mm -hmm. this initiative off ground, give us a call. I mean, this is something I can empathize with, right? Like you guys do so much at ILSR with such few resources that, you know, a part of me thinks that, you know, a listener or two who you feel has now a good enough grasp on some of these issues, if they could sort of become volunteers, I mean, I'm willing to totally become a volunteer for that, right? Like if you need me at any point to say, hey, you know, here's a town getting started, you know, they could use a conversation or two. Are you cool with talking to them periodically? Like I would totally mm -hmm. sign up and I think a lot of other people would. And I think that is maybe just- Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, one way to perhaps start that would be 
once a month having a kind of open Zoom call where people could bring their questions and chat about it for an hour and hear from others who might have similar challenges. We did that, I don't know, five years ago. And um, we did it twice. There wasn't a lot of turnout, but a lot's changed since then. So I could see trying to do a a series of those where um, that could be the first start where you come to sort of an open discussion um, and then may get paired off with people like you. Yeah, no, and you know, I think like, uh, I mean, I think this is kind of the challenge with internalization is like, you know, it's like, you know, you know, that cliche, right? Like, it's not a cliche, it's like saying that when when the student is ready, (laughs) the master emerges. It's like, unless the listener is really ready to absorb the lesson, there's no point. And so I feel like, you know, maybe sort of one hack around that could be that, you know, like scheduling something, if it could literally just be like, you know, a room that is open, like Mm -hmm. for four hours a day, which is just, you know, manned by or or, or or like you know held by like one individual either in your org or someone and it's the idea is that like there's this little there's this little room <laughs> there's this little cafe virtual cafe that's open and you can just get in there and you can have a chat and it can be a very general chat and I think like office hours you know maybe and this is something I've been thinking about about the COVID world as well right that you know how do we create those spaces where you know more fluid dialogue can happen but good to know good to know and i'm and i'd, I'd be very interested you know in what sort of some of the other listeners uh who are um listening and think about ways we can support uh, ilsr beyond financial contributions because i think what you guys do is amazing and uh, i mean any any just about everyone i've come across is a huge fan of you and this show which brings me to my last and final question chris and that is that we can see internet broad rural broadband or in god i mean you know god willing i i'm 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 optimistic i think america will solve its broadband problems in the next 5 6 years and i think after that it'll be really exciting to see what this economic engine does because you know i've always said this that you know it's the biggest economy in the world with the worst <laughs> broadband ever imagine this economy this sort of spirit getting like you know uh, a singapore style or south korea style broadband what's going to happen to america then so i mean i remain very bullish america but this brings me to that question mm-hmm. when that happens when internet for all has happened across america what are you going to do what's next for chris mitchell once there is no connectivity battle to fight because i do think that day will come and i'd uh, be curious to know what's next for you after this world I'm not entirely sure that you're right about there being no battle to fight, but I think you might be right in the larger question in that I think my skill set and personality does better on the frontier than it does in sort of a well-established field. Um, and and I think yeah. there will be fights on connectivity. Um, I, if I look at the history of electrification, the, the, the big Wall mm-hmm. Street interests are constantly trying to figure out how to take over something that is so essential. Because when something becomes essential, it means people will pay a lot for it. And I think you may have heard me talk about this before. I mean, if if something horrible happened and my and our electricity prices went up by a factor of twenty times or a hundred times, what are you going to do? Not use electricity, <laughs> right? Like, no, you're you're still going to use it. A light at night, um, being able to keep food cold. Um, these things are essential. And so Wall Street you know, sort of minded folks, they know that. And so they're trying to figure out how to get a piece of that action. And we're going to see that with internet access for a long time. And so I think there will be work to be done long after we have accomplished a lot of the goals that we've set out. Um, 
but like you said, I, you know, I think, um, I, I like to be in areas where there's a little bit more of a frontier and, um, and I mean, I, this isn't as much of a frontier, I guess, in some ways, I mean, it's something that's been a, a fight for a long time, but it's, I feel like something that it needs a different approach and that's housing. When I look at the racial inequity yeah. that America has in particular, so much of it seems to be centered around housing, housing wealth, the legacy of it. Um, you know, my family went from working class to being very successful in part because of the GI Bill. Um, my father served. That was a mechanism that um, he then, you know, did very hard work. Both of my parents worked extremely hard. Um, and and yet um, they also, you know, benefited from being able to live in any neighborhood that they wanted to. They benefited in, in many ways from um, a privilege we haven't extended to lots of people. And I... I, you know, you and I talked a little bit on LinkedIn where I was saying, I think housing is one of the most important things. And you were saying, what about internet access? And, and I think internet access is important, but like intergenerational wealth from housing is like, is so important for, for how we've built America. And so that's something I could see myself just really wanting to get, bury myself in, um, that, and also, um, family leave policy is something that I just think is really important. When I look at again, how important family is and how many millions, tens of millions of Americans aren't able to care for loved ones. It, it, um, whether it's parents or whether it's children, um, you know, that one has to care for it, it ruins lives when you can't be there. And I just, I feel like for all our material wealth, we need to have a, a good solution that is both business friendly and family friendly to making sure that, um, that we can do that. So, I mean, it's policy issues. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in policy. And so those are two that I just, I come back to. Very interesting. One, if I may suggest, Chris, because I mean, I am very much, I say still, I can, I, I see Wall Street's perspective quite a bit. Sure. So I need to respond to something that you said. It's like, consider understanding incentive structures, right? Like I, I'll say this, like corporations are not evil, right? Like no CEO is sitting there saying, I want to go. at and might be. People. It's like, <laughs> it's like what, gets, what gets measured gets right. done. What gets measured gets done, right? It's like, it's like, if shareholders are saying we're going to hire a management team to maximize total shareholder return, then that management team is going to try and maximize total shareholder return. And if the underlying structure is looking to, uh, you know, uh, is, 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 is going to result in a market failure. I mean, I think you raised a really good point about electricity. Like one of the reasons we don't end up seeing a 20 X increase in electricity is because it is a rate based driven right. business model. It's like based on a, a, a fixed return on capital. Telecom is based on average revenue per user, which is high in urban areas, low in rural areas, or like there's you, you earn more in urban areas. And so I think like, you know, one area if I, 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 I you know, consider is worth sort of looking into, and I think you're so well placed to like bridge that gap is, 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 you know, why do corporations behave the way they do? It's like, you know, literally, if there's a, if there's a way mm-hmm. to tweak that incentive structure, you know, I mean, behaviors may change. And um, so just something I thought I'd leave you with, Chris. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think you're familiar with some of our, our other work across ILSR. Um, you know, my colleague, Stacey Mitchell, very yeah. focused on this. Um and you guys are related, right? No, we're not. You're not no relation. <laughs> no relation. Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's a okay. it's an ongoing joke in which I always pretend that she's just embarrassed that I somehow ended up with a name that's the same as hers. Ah. Um, but the the thing is that I, I feel like um, 
the incentives are essential. And that's, that's what I've come down to. I agree with you 100% on that. And the challenge is where the incentives are set by corrupt legislation, because the people that have economic power write the rules. And that's where our fundamental analysis is that by decentralizing power, it's doesn't make it inevitable that that mm-hmm. that you know the common man or common woman would write the rules but it's just the closer we get power to main street the harder it is for massive corporations to to basically write all the rules and I th- that's in short what we do at ILSR is try to figure out how to get better rules so we can have a stronger economy that is more centered on you know community values and benefiting the communities Amazing. Amazing. On that, I'm totally with you, Chris. It was an absolute pleasure. This was my first ever interview. I've never (laughs) interviewed anyone. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Really enjoyed learning about your your formative years. And uh, best of luck with with what's next. I, I can't say it strongly enough. I think I think your organization is a is a is a national treasure. And I really hope that you know, more people in America in the coming days and years will recognize the immense contributions that you and your colleagues have made. So thank you. Well, thank you, Asfi. When when we put out the idea of someone interviewing me and then um, and you wrote back that you were interested, the first thing was everyone on my team were all like, oh, well, that's obvious. He'll be great. Like, and my second thought was, oh, man, this is going to be so much of a harder interview than I expected. Because you have a you have a, a real you have a way of cutting to the important parts of arguments. So I'm really glad you stepped up for it, and I'm I'm really appreciative. Thank you, thank you. I look forward to listening to this, and and hi to uh, all your colleagues. And I hope this madness ends, man. I'd love to come down to Minnesota and meet you guys. In person. Yes, well, you'll be invited as soon as we have uh, some of this under control. Thank you, Chris. That was Christopher talking with Asfi of Net Equity Networks. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 418 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thank you for listening.